Hey everyone, welcome to episode two of the Level Up Therapy podcast. My name is Justin Tang. And I'm Ray Kong. And we are your co-hosts for today's episode. Today we have a special guest joining us, Pratik Sanyal, Senior Machine Learning Operations Developer at Unity. Pratik describes himself as a machine learning ops and data engineering specialist, cybersecurity enthusiast, author, gamer, hobbyist chess player, and thought addict. He says hobbyist, but if you can kick someone's ass in six moves, you're kind of more than a hobbyist. Currently, he's a senior developer at Unity Tech, paving the way forward on their machine learning and artificial intelligence platform and tools. Thanks for joining us, Pratik. How's it going? Long time no see. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. What's up, everyone? Um, This is my first time ever being on a podcast, so I'm stoked to be here. Um, Awesome. It's our first time running a podcast, (laughs) so we're stoked to have you here. (laughs) <laughs> stoked, guys. Yeah, and good to see you again, Ray. It's been a while. We used to be uh, college mates in uh, at University of Toronto, Mississauga. Uh, very good friends for a long time, I would say. Yeah, I. You know, back then, I don't think either of us would have expected to be where we are now. Absolutely, right now. man. Absolutely. You were like, like king political science, <laughs> not leaning in any particular way, but you just did really well in that major, and I was just. You were the man on campus. Yeah. Everybody knew Ray. That's what we used to say. His words, not mine. Yeah, and I mean, Pratik, I, now that you've kind of made your way into the gaming industry, I wanted to kind of know and get your perspective on what it's like to work in the gaming industry. Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do. Yeah, um, for sure. So as Ray mentioned, I studied political science and communications in university. And once I graduated, I decided to change career tracks for various reasons. And then I tried to become a programmer, went to a coding bootcamp, amazing experience, by the way. First few months was a real struggle to get a job. I uh, did some small contracts here and there. And eventually I landed my first full-time job with Gameloft. Uh, so Gameloft's like a giant in the mobile gaming industry. Yeah. And I started there as a backend dev on their data science team under the business vertical. And I think within the first six months, my role transitioned more towards what's modernly known as data engineering. Back then, data engineering was just a very ambiguous term that we heard on the internet, didn't really know what it meant. But now I think everyone understands what it is. Yeah, so I was at Gameloft for about two years, a little more than two years. Then I moved into a luxury fashion e-commerce company. And then uh, very recently, actually, I just joined Unity, which is uh, as you all probably know, like one of the world's leading game engine companies. And I work in Unity's operate department, which is essentially their monetization and ads platform department. Right. So yeah, I've been working in like the ad space within gaming for a while, I would say. It's a lot of fun. Like I've been a gamer all my life. Like it's been maybe my primary, one of my primary hobbies all my life. So I used to make like little games on Flash, like 2D games when I was a kid. So when I actually got an opportunity to work at Unity, I was I was delighted because I was like, damn, this is my like my 14-year-old self would have been really proud of me today, you know? So Yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. Yeah. One of one of the things that you just mentioned that I caught on to was that you mentioned changing career tracks. Um, what was it like to make that decision? Because I, I think there's a lot of people who would be hesitant to make that kind of jump. Now I know you were you were gaming since you were young. I mean, did that play a part in the, you know, the passion to chase change tracks and change this uh, chase this kind of role? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Gameloft happened for me not, uh, it wasn't something that I was targeting per se, like the gaming industry. I was desperate to find a job as a software developer back then. 
and I was pretty much open to taking anything that was respectable. And it just so happened that Gameloft was one of two companies that made me an offer. And it was maybe when it came to choosing between those two companies, I went with Gameloft because of my background in gaming. Right. In terms of a career switch, like it really it's a case by case thing, right? It depends on your context. I don't want to, I don't want to give any general advice because who knows what your situation is, right? Like I've seen friends who have, like for me, it was easy to be honest, because I didn't have a career per se before this. I just graduated from school. My brain was young. I was sharp and I was energetic. Like I didn't, it's not that I was leaving something behind. I didn't have kids to feed or anything like that. So for me, it was more like starting something from scratch. And I was very open-minded about what it could be. But yeah, it's definitely like, I would say just taking a chance on yourself is definitely worth it, especially if you're young, right? If you're coming out of university, don't settle for something that that you might not enjoy forever because if you have the means, right? Like if you have kids to feed or whatever you need to, your bills to pay, it's a bit different. But in my case, I was blessed to not have any of these responsibilities. So, Right. So yeah. take advantage of being able to, to take risks while you're still young, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why awesome. life presents the opportunity really. For sure. And you, so you brought up the topic of monetization. What are your thoughts on that based off the experiences that you've had so far? I, I know that there's, you know, to me, there's good monetization and there's bad monetization. So, you know, tell me a little bit about what you've learned in the in- industry working there so far. Yeah. Justin, why don't I ask you first? What do you, what would you say is good and bad monetization? Ah, man, I think, that's a good question because I think that for me, good monetization is when it doesn't interfere with the game. So you, you know, you can play the game and you get the value out of it, and it's not something that can you know give somebody an advantage. So I'm talking about like pay to win, for example. You know, if somebody can implement monetization because developers do need to make money without you know putting players at a disadvantage or somebody who can't necessarily afford to pay the money at a disadvantage, that's good monetization. I think bad monetization is when it definitely interferes with someone's ability to play the game or, you know, you can't win unless you're spending hundreds of dollars to win. Yeah, I guess that's how I would see it. I I really, it depends on, you know, are you getting the value that you're spending your money on and does it interfere with your ability to play the game and Mm -hmm. have fun doing so? Yeah, I, I, I would say like, not only do I agree with you, I have some strong opinions about this myself. So I, I'll start by saying this. I don't reflect the opinions of my employer or anyone who I've worked for in the past. So take everything I say as my own opinion and not any companies. Yep. Disclaimer um, right there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's what my, you know, here's what I think about this. And this is someone who's been a gamer all my life, right? So every industry, there's something you have to hold sacred, Right. So like something that's this, the ideological center of, of your work. Um, and I think when it comes to gaming, that is the, the game itself, right? So like the gaming industry was originally always built around, hey, we have these really sexy games. We have amazing, like we did something cool, something creative. There's like an art form that underlies it, the craft, right? Anything you do uh, in terms of business, should be auxiliary to this core, to this central thing that you hold sacred, which is the game itself. So you build business models and features and monetization strategies around supporting this central experience, which is 
your your gamer your user comes on you know their computer their console whatever and plays this fantastic game and nothing you do should undercut that experience right right um as a gamer i like i agree with you and i think where the line should uh, should be drawn is if your monetization strategy is what defines the gamer's experience with the game then again i won't go as far as to say it's a good or bad like i'm not saying it's a value judgment but to what at what point do you stop calling yourself a a gaming company when right. like a, or a publisher or a studio or whatever because uh, at that point it's something else right it's something else you're like a you're like a like a casino or a media company or something i don't know what to call it really but content yeah you're a content company i think that's a really good way to put it like a really good example of this so i think like in the past we lived in simpler times right when games were sold as cds or or discs or whatever it is right like it's some physical hardware and you just paid for the game right you paid for the game and you had it and then you played it on your console or your pc and that was a simple model but obviously it's not it's not necessarily something that would sustain itself throughout like we didn't expect it to remain like that forever i think uh, the internet came around and people started trying out new strategies to like change the way games are monetized right yeah and we could look at like two competing ideologies in this field that i think again like i don't want to use value judgments good or bad but i think there's one as a gamer i i prefer substantially so let's look at counter strike and clash royale right so two really popular games csgo and clash royale yeah uh, they both reached like a threshold in their demographics like they were so big that they could take some risks with monetization like they could try things that hadn't been tried before and these two games tried very different things right so counter strike so let's talk about clash royale first which is i think the more common way which is they went with like a pay to win approach so they said that look we have this rating system i forget what it's called but something like an elo rating system where it would appear that if you have more points on their system you are a better player but the way they designed the game you could upgrade the cards at a faster rate by you know with in in app purchases and stuff like that right and so the line between the game and the monetization strategy was completely blurred so you could become better at the game by spending more money right so when someone is like a 3500 on clash royale it doesn't necessarily mean they're better than a 2000 it just means that they've spent more money on that right exactly uh, but but the, the the problematic thing is they could indeed be better but now you have to say okay prove it like did you guys spend the uh, spend the same amount of money on this did you did one person spend their money more wisely is that part of the gaming experience whereas counter strike when they reached this like sort of point at which they were big enough to take risks with their business model rather than changing the gaming experience rather than selling better guns or whatever they sold skins right so like you have what's called the economy of skins and stuff in counter strike so you can like so for those that don't know in counter strike you can actually purchase skins for your guns and your knives and stuff like that and uh, some of them are cheap but some of them are are not cheap at all like their skins worth tens of thousands of dollars if i'm not mistaken um and like what happens with that so basically if like i think when they first introduced this a lot of people were skeptical they were like why why would anyone pay money for something that doesn't improve the gaming experience but i think the valve's ideology around this was 
that's the point it's not meant to change the gaming experience it's meant to it's meant to be something that's auxiliary like if you want to spend money and if you want to build something on the side with this go ahead like you can make cosmetic upgrades to your game but i think what valve what valve even didn't consider is just how big this would blow up like the skins economy now is a f- like a huge industry on its own like you can there's sites where you can have auctions on skins that you own every time skins are dropped like you know this twitch channels where people have viral videos of just unboxing a knife you know a knife yeah. or something like that and so there's an entire in- economy around skins around buying and selling skins there there's startups like websites that were entirely built on on this economy like you know you buy and sell skins on this website and you you can bet on tournament wins so you there's a betting economy like you can bet on who which team wins a game in a tournament and you can bet your skins on that on 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 those tournaments so it's like betting with money but rather than you use skins as a proxy for money no the really beautiful thing about this whole so, experience is that like the 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 core gameplay of CS:GO wasn't ever affected by it and i i love that as a gamer i really enjoyed that absolutely and one thing i wanted to bring to your attention in this case then is you know you have exactly what i mentioned which was great you know they didn't have monetization that interfered with the game you know buying stuff doesn't necessarily make you a better player in counter strike but what do you think about the fact now that they were kind of you know in a scandal about gambling and you have these maybe you know kids who are buying and buying and buying cases and spending all the money because you know they hope to unlock a case that has the you know beautiful skin that you're looking for so i know that you know counter strike um was recently you know not too recently but they were in the news because there was a scandal about how they were being seen as a gambling site now and you had these people that were addicted to buying packs and spending money what do you think about monetization in that sense then yeah that's a really good question so i think the gambling question it wouldn't be fair to it's not a problem of the counter strike skin economy model it's a problem with any model where you have in app purchases and drops right so like if you if you can unbox stuff this whole on unboxing content in a game and you pay for like keys or whatever it's a problem across I, okay i'm not going to call it a problem it's it's a pattern across video games in general and i think like the whole gambling problem exists not just in csgo but in other games the one thing that csgo is doing better for sure is that it's not ruining the the gameplay experience now about the ethics of like having this like side economy like this uh, you know skins economy and like bidding on skins and and sort of treating it like a casino in a sense it's a good question i don't know maybe there should be like stricter age regulation around who can do this i uh, unfortunately i don't think legislation will ever catch up to how fast these things are introduced and how fast they change yeah i don't really have i've not really thought about that problem it's a good it's a good question though i think it's interesting because gamers have this inherent value i guess that they're willing to place on certain items and um i think that sometimes you know somebody knows what they're spending their money on i i kind of make this um equate to the collectibles market you know for toys and such and anybody who collects anything you're willing to spend x amount of dollars for something that you see x amount of value in I I just feel like there are some of those people, you know, like the kids that will have access to a credit card and they can just keep spending money and um like you said people have unboxing videos on YouTube it's a trend now people see that it goes viral and then um I I guess it just becomes a pattern where people like spending money there are, are certainly a lot of nice skins on on you know Counter Strike Go one example that I actually wanted to bring up 
was from a game called Apex Legends. Um, it's another first-person shooter online game. And I've so far logged just over 950 hours into it. Now, mind you, it's a weird flex because I still suck at the game. But the point <laughs> is, I really, really enjoy it, right? So now recently, Respawn and EA, the teams behind the game, were under fire because they have something called a battle pass, which you can buy in every season of the game for like $12 Canadian. And that involves you grinding out certain objectives to get points that will level you up from one all the way to 110. So before it was somewhat achievable if you played consistently to basically run through the battle pass. But for the most latest battle pass that they just introduced, they decided to change everything up. Long story short, they made it so that it was almost impossible to achieve completing the battle pass unless you were playing every single day. Mind you, you'd be playing for hours if you were not, you know, amazing at the game. So what happens is what happened is they introduced the ability to also buy levels in the battle pass to go up. So, you know, if you didn't want to grind your way up, you could buy a battle pass level and, you know, just keep buying battle pass levels until you go up. So what happened was people were saying, look, you're putting in this system where it's hard for us to organically level up and kind of pushing us and nudging us towards buying battle pass levels. Mm. Um, And I think Respawn responded to this by making it easier And there was this whole conspiracy about basically saying, you know, we're going to push out this monetization scheme that nobody will like. And then, as expected, people are going to react poorly. So we're going to put out this ugly but better looking solution that people will be satisfied with because people are going to be like, oh, look, you know, we fixed the problem a little bit. And then people will be satisfied with this model. It was kind of like a little conspiracy that was going on. So I think that this was an example of where it, and, and mind you that there was nothing in this battle pass that would inherently change gameplay. Again, this battle pass only had skins and emotes. There was nothing that would give anybody an advantage, right. but people felt like, you know, I paid $12 and I wanted to get everything, but you made it so hard to accomplish going through this battle pass. I think that this is an example that, showed where bad monetization can happen. And mind you, I think just yesterday they put out another post talking about more changes they were going to make because they just received so much backlash that it was insane. Yeah, I mean, I just, I I think about these situations where companies will introduce this monetization scheme and then kind of dial it back just so that people will be satisfied. But, you know, it's kind of when you negotiate something higher, but you're actually aiming for something lower. They put out this thing that you know everybody thought would be unachievable and then would be satisfied with this lesser solution that would still make them more money, if that makes any sense. Yeah, Basically, people sense. weren't happy. <laughs> so EA has been generally notorious for a lot of these monetization schemes, I guess. You, would, you could call it. But um, one example that also came to mind was Star Wars Battlefront 2, which basically led to a world record on Reddit for being one of the most downvoted comments of all time with, I think it was 667,000 oh, yeah. downvotes. You remember that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was tied to monetization, right? Because, yeah. you know, when they put out Star Wars, this property that everybody loved, you know, it was just riddled with microtransactions. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what did you think about that? Yeah, I, I think I remember uh, video game Donkey. He had a, he had like this video about Star uh, Star Wars. 
Battle Battlefront. Battlefront. Battle Star Wars yeah, Battlefront Battle too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he had uh, he had this point about how you're making these games where you could just pay money to play the game, but then you could pay more money to just not play the game. You could just skip <laughs> the entire leveling process, right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean it's hilarious. Like I get it from like a business standpoint why they would do something like that. As a, as a gamer, clearly that doesn't seem seems like counterproductive, right? Like I I I See, I think what it is is that we need to find a business model, like a monetization strategy, that aligns with this sanctity of the gaming experience, right? So, like, is there a way for gamers, uh, for uh, like a, a publisher, to make more money by having you actually go through the entire game? Right. I don't know. At the moment, that's a very, very difficult thing to reward. Well, if we can step back for a second and like ask ourselves. You know why this is happening in the first place. It's it to me. It feels like the game developers are just shortening the gap between, you know, gameplay and reward. You know, so the whole point of like you know playing God of War, or Mario Kart, or all the games we used to love, is for the payoff. So now they're just giving the option to pay for the payoff, yeah. <laughs> for the dopamine rush yeah. and all that stuff, right? Yeah. And now we're addicted to it. Yeah. Or some people are addicted to it. And so it's just it's just cyclical. It's a positive feedback loop. Yeah. Is there an example uh, that you can think of? I mean, and I'll, you know, pose this to both Ray and Pratik, but is this is there an example that you can think of where there's a game with good monetization, like monetization that you know you actually don't mind or like? I mean, you brought up Counter-Strike. I actually don't play a lot of mobile games or multiplayer games for that matter. Right. Um, again, like I think with a lot of single player games, especially the indie indie games, uh, there are very good like traditional options. Like you could just have a game, sell it on Steam for like I don't know whatever amount you want, twenty five bucks, thirty bucks. And then I'm not particularly against the idea of having DLCs as long as it's done in a respectable way. Like uh, Creative Assembly, the Total War guys, they release DLCs on Total Wars all the time, but they're like, they're fine because they're actually just adding to the gameplay experience. It's not like in some games, if you don't have a DLC, you literally can't go through the entire game, right? I, I find this to be a problem with some of the Assassin's Creed's where it's like very similar to what you were describing with Apex Legends. It's like I was playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which like Ubisoft to me is an interesting, interesting example of a studio where like, Somewhere down the line, I think the creatives just, they're not making the decisions anymore. And I can understand why it's a huge company and they have like investors to answer to and stuff like that, shareholders and stuff. But yeah, like the the, the game, like uh, Assassin's Creed, I think they focused on all these selling points, which is just this massive, beautiful, magnificent map with like, with just endless, endless quests and gameplay and stuff like that. But then when you actually start digging deeper, you see so many problems. Like all of these, like the side quests all seem kind of recycled. And then the monetization strategy, it's like similar to what you were describing. Like you'll hit a level, like at which point it's just so slow to uh, level up your your armor and stuff like that, that you almost can't do it without in-app purchases, like without in-game purchases, because uh, it just takes too long. And like, uh, you know, levels that should take maybe an hour or two to clear will take you days. And then... As a gamer, you either spend more money or you get bored. And this is what I was talking about. I don't, I don't know how, but there has to be a way for publishers to be rewarded if gamers 
continue playing, not continue spending money, but continue paying, uh, playing. And this, like, it's a, it's a very, very difficult, like a nuanced problem, right? Like if, if someone had an answer to it, we'd probably see it. I do want to mention another game, actually, that I've recently started playing a lot of, which yeah. I think has a very healthy monetization strategy. Um, Polytopia, it's like this uh, turn-based MMO, uh, like war strategy game. It's very I simple. love Polytopia. Yeah, it's a beautiful game. So I think it was made by like one brother, one guy or two brothers. I'm not sure. And it's simple, like uh, voxel art, like turn-based strategy. Like the mechanics are really simple, but the game, I think what happened with Polytopia is their community really like ballooned from a very young, from a very early point in the game's life cycle. And they've been supporting their community and in return, the game keeps growing. They recently released on, on Steam, uh, Polytopia Moonrise. I believe it was built on Unity 2, which is pretty cool. Oh, really? Um, yeah. It's so, cool. like, Polytopia, like, their monetization strategy was, hey, you can you can buy the game, play it for free. But if you want to play online, you have to buy a tribe. Just one tribe. But uh, you can buy, you can buy, there's, like, not a lot of tribes. I think eight or ten, maybe. I'm not sure. And each of them costs like a couple of dollars at like, best. Yeah, yeah. I, I played the the mobile version and I only see, at least from my side, I only see three tribes. I've unlocked a few already and um, I think they were like $2.99 or something yeah, each Canadian. Like there's, I, there's a few Very more cheap. tribes now. Okay. They add new tribes once in a while. But here's the thing, like the core game, like it's, it's you can you can compete in like their leagues and stuff with the community organized leagues with just one tribe. Maybe you need like, maybe you need to unlock two or three tribes, right? But that's less than 10 bucks. And it's a very healthy experience because it's not like gambling. Like once you do it, you're good. You play. I, I'm not sure about this, but I don't think there's any ads in that game, which is pretty sick. Yeah. And like, yeah, I, I get it. Like not everyone can do that because Polytopia is a, it started off like with one guy, no liabilities, like a low budget project and bigger companies. Like I, I do get the need to have like ads and stuff in games because it's really difficult to maintain, like sustain a franchise if you're giving away your games for free or like five bucks a pop or something like that on the internet. You right. need you need something to monetize. And this is where I think like gamers and like publishers need to like reach a compromise, like to try and understand what works for both of them. So what hey, thing- I, I wanted to address one more thing, Justin. Yeah. Like we were talking about this question, like I it, like I, I kind of thought about it for a little longer, ruminated on it. We were talking about like the addiction problem with something like CSGO, right? Yeah. And what I realized was this is this predates gaming. So if you remember like when we were kids and Pokemon cards were a huge thing. Oh yeah. (laughs) We felt the same way about Pokemon cards. Like any money we had, pocket money, we would like buy a pack and just hope that we land like a rare card or something. Yeah. Um, And this is where it makes me think like maybe some of the onus just lies with the parents. Like don't leave your kid with your credit card. You know, it's like set a limit to how much they can spend on your Google account or do something like that. Like, yeah, if if your kid can just go on Counter-Strike store and spam the credit card to buy keys and boxes, (laughs) That's There's a different like, problem there then. Yeah, that's a different problem. Like, you know. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I totally agree with you. That's why I, I equated it to like collectibles because I, yeah. I totally get the same sensation, right? And I just want to bring back to one point you mentioned about Polytopia and unlocking tribes uh, and paying for tribes because I feel like it's kind of like the same, you know, paying for tribes or unlocking characters in the game. What's interesting about Polytopia is that although you could technically pay for a character that somebody who doesn't pay cannot have, I don't think that there's a very strong disadvantage, you know, a person who pays for a, a tribe has over somebody who doesn't pay for a tribe because although you can buy uh, a tribe, it's I think the game is fairly well balanced to the to the point that each tribe has their own strategy 
And you don't need to have, you know, the paid tribes to win. You can still play with the free tribes and, and still do pretty well. Do you agree with uh, that? Or Yeah, like I think in case of Polytopia, you, you need to buy a tribe to pay, play online. That's just to, Oh yeah, have, aside from, yeah. yeah, aside from that. Aside but gameplay-wise. Yeah, but it's an important point to bring up because like there's games where you need to keep buying the next best armor or the next best tribe, the next best gun. Polytopia is not like that. Like if you if you make a good decision in the beginning, like you find a tribe that you actually work with well, you can just stick to buying one tribe. Having said that, like I, I play in like some competitive leagues where there comes a point where you need to buy most of the tribes just because you're playing games with like 10 people and like all the tribes are already taken or something. Oh, okay. But, <laughs> There's that too. Yeah, yeah, but again, it's not it's not nearly like it's not a problem. Like game devs need to make money somehow in a, in a sustained way, like over time. This is not like gambling. There's a very clear, it's a very clear transaction. You buy a product, like the tribe is a product, you buy a product and then you own it, right? And uh, it's not something that you have to keep buying every day or every week or whatever. It's a right. one-time thing. It's not expendable. Yeah. So and, I, and yeah. yeah, I like that very much. The point that I wanted to make with that also was when I look at a game like Super Smash Bros, where you have, you know, the fighter packs as DLCs. You know, just because you buy a fighter pack with the latest character, whether it's Joker or the Piranha Plant or, you know, any of the other new characters that you had to pay for as DLC, doesn't mean that you'll suck with Pikachu, you know, who was originally part of the roster and you didn't have to pay for him, right? All of these characters are still balanced in a way that just because you buy the latest character doesn't mean you still can't play as the free characters and and just as well, right? And that's where I think monetization is still pretty good, where it's like the game still is fairly balanced whether you buy or not. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree. Uh, like there's even, okay, let's look at this from the perspective of the publishers, the studios, not necessarily from the perspective of the customer, but even then, right? So like if I'm a, if I'm a game, a game studio, when I, when I put in these monetization strategies that they're like the low hanging fruit, right? Like I'm going to try and get you to like pay five cents extra every whatever, or a dollar extra every here and there to, MMORTS games are notorious for this, where like you have something being constructed, takes 20 minutes, level two takes two days, but you can get it done faster if you spend five coins or something. It's a good strategy in the short run, but there is something to be said about building relationships with your with your user base in the long run, right? Yeah. And this is where I think like a, a game like Polytopia or Counter-Strike really shines. Like Counter-Strike, okay, it's it's just it's so far back in history when it became a huge deal that it's kind of hard to relate, but let's look at Polytopia, which is a very recent game, right? I don't remember exactly when it came out, but it couldn't be very old, like a couple of, couple of years at best. It's it's amazing how big this community has become so quickly. And like, I think I spoke to one of their like community managers recently. They're planning to organize like a pro esports league. They're, I don't know who they're working with, but I believe we might see some pro Polytopia action soon. Um, wow. How did they do it? It's such a small organization with no funding. And if you ask me what they did was like, they really asked this question, like, what is sacred to us? Like, this, the thing that's sacred is the game, like the experience of Polytopia, right? The battles. Yeah. We want to improve balance with every update. We want to make sure that, like, this gameplay element isn't sacrificed. Everything else is, like, secondary to it. And what happens with that is in the short run, I'm sure they could have made more money. In the short run, I'm sure they could have sh- uh, shown more ads in their games and had more... Uh, you know, IAP drops or something. IAP is short for in-app purchases. They could have done so much to make quick money, but they didn't. And if you ask me, we're going to see the result of that in like five to 10 years from now, 
when when you'll have this massive esports community behind Politopia. And I can guarantee you it'll happen because I play in these leagues with some really, really serious Politopia players. And today we're seeing dumb games like Among Us make a ton of money. I don't want to call it dumb because it's bad. It's just like, <laughs> it's a mindless yeah. game. Yeah. But I think there's like tournaments with like $25,000 prize pools and stuff. This is where we saw this, we saw this stuff in the Politopia Discord communities. And we were like, man, if Among Us is making that kind of money, how come we can't do it, right? We have a big competitive, serious player base. We have like leagues where you like bid for players with like uh, free tokens. They're not monetized bids, but... Uh, right. So why can't we do this? And and that's when like I started this conversation and like the community manager from Politopia told me that they have plans for it. Uh, yeah, if you ask me, man, like in five or 10 years, these companies w- will do really well because this is where you're not just building a game, you're building a brand. The, the, the community, the gaming community will look at your company later, your studio and be like, man, they care. Like they did a really good thing for us. And like, yeah, maybe they didn't make as much money in the short run, but look in the long run, we have this amazing experience. So that community matters a lot. Like you can monetize that in more healthy ways in the long run, I think. Yeah. And I, and I think to your point, it's interesting that you bring up Among Us and compare it to Polytopia because I think one of the biggest differences is exactly what you just mentioned. Sometimes it's about building a brand, right? I think that Among Us has been able to go viral due to several factors, but I think that's just what, you know, Polytopia needs to do. It has to go viral in some ways. And, you know, a big part of that is getting the attention of the streamer community, right? How do you get Polytopia into the hands of big streamers who people follow and, you know, will enjoy the game? But I think Among Us has this appeal to it. You know, people like the mafia style deduction kind of games because they've been playing that, you know, even if you're not uh, a hardcore gamer or, you know, any kind of gamer, a lot of people have played mafia with their friends and families at school and whatnot. And that concept kind of came across to Among Us where you have, you know, the trader, hidden trader concept. I think it's about virality, you know, how a lot of games started becoming uh, viral after the quarantine because a lot of people wanted to find a way to stay in touch with their friends. Mm-hmm. This was one of the good ways to do that, I, I guess. Yeah. So virality is a big part of it, I would say. Yeah. I like, again, I, I guess the comparison in a broad sense is not a fair one because it's apples to oranges, right? Like Among Us, as you mentioned, is for like a much more non-gamer audience for casual, very casual gamers. Yeah. And from what I heard, like I, again, we have to fact, fact check this, but from what I, what I heard, Among Us is a fairly old game that for many years didn't make a lot of money because it was kind of just sort of there in the background. Yeah. But recently it went viral. And with most things on the internet that go viral, it's really hard to predict that. Like, it's really hard to say that this is the one that's going to make it. And that's where I think like we should draw a distinction <clears throat> between a good strategy and a game that kind of, yeah, like this is my opinion, but I think Among Us in some senses got lucky. Like it got lucky to be right time, right place, just got picked up by the right streamers and it made it, right? But does Among Us have as good a strategy as Polytopia? I don't know, because I think when I look at something like Polytopia, the way they're fostering a community is is insane. It's nuts. Like it's they're doing it so well. There are other games that are trying to do that. I, I know for a fact that like, okay, so Insurgency Sandstorm kind of went the opposite direction. And like, there was a YouTube channel that I, I follow where I, I wish I could remember the name, but there was a guy who went on a rant about this. He was like, man, we were so serious about this game. We tried to build a pro scene. We tried to create leagues tournaments, but they just never fixed the imbalances and matchmaking in the maps and stuff like that. And the, the, the matchmaking community just kind of died out. And uh, so people start playing like push and like other sort of casual, semi-casual modes. And, um, 
now they're trying to like revive the matchmaking community but this is where especially because you bring up the example of twitch right so i think it's important to say that there is the kind of games that usually survive in the esports industry and the kind of stuff that becomes big on twitch they're not necessarily the same kind of games that like that i would categorize something like among us as or even insurgency for that matter where they're pandering more to a casual community even within their own demographic like insurgency chose i think in its early days to pander more to its casual community rather than the the pro scene and this is like one of two directions you could take with your games like if you're looking for a game that's a good cash cow there are a lot of companies there which this is their model like and it's not a bad thing because i guess there's a there's a market for it but like a lot of people really just want a simple dope hit like they want to spend 2 or 3 bucks a week and play a game which gives them like this sort of like continuous dope hit right and like there's a yeah. lot of mobile games that do that but if you're trying to build like a relationship a brand and and really push the gaming industry forward in 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 a new direction you got to do what what games like csgo did in their prime and what games like uh, what games like politopia are doing today where you make the game the priority you make the community the priority and like that's where a good matchmaking i think comes from like a good pro scene comes from balance and it comes from trust like you need to trust the game studios not to fuck up your gamers experience right like and this is a really important detail like if anything you do in your monetization strategy fucks up the gamers experience like the competitive experience it's in the long run you're shooting yourself in the foot but right. hey there are very good examples to to prove the opposite to be true as well like supercell is a fantastic studio every time they drop a game it goes viral they they just know things about the industry that like nobody else seems to understand but they're not they're not ashamed to tell you that like their model is this like uh you know more in app purchases and more dlcs and like loot boxes and stuff like that and do you agree with it maybe not but a lot of players seem to be okay with that so again this is just me as an old school gamer i i really enjoy games and like studios that take the element of community and and the matchmaking side of things very seriously yeah and i think it goes back to that point about gamers having an inherent value of what they're willing to spend you know like in in app purchases and on mobile games you see like oh i have to spend maybe 2 dollars here or 3 dollars there 1 dollar here it's like not a big deal right but it's i think you start to see it when you're expected to pay maybe 30 dollars 40 dollars for for something in a game that you know needs to be paid for yeah so Polytopia is something that we mentioned quite often so far. You guys should check it out then, eh? Yeah. I'm not like sponsored by anyone. Oh yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Another disclaimer. I just right I, I enjoy the game and like shout out to the game. community, man. During the pandemic, I think uh, the Polytopia community has been been great for my mental health too because they're just good people, you know, they're mostly just kids playing this game and taking it really seriously. It's amazing to me how much like math middle school kids are willing to do over a video game. But yeah, like we branched out into a bunch of other communities. Like we have like an Among Us server for Polytopia players and a chess, like a chess club for Polytopia players. Wow, uh, <laughs> man, that is intense. Cool, I sucked yeah. many hours into that game. So, when uh, one more thing I wanted to bring up was when we think of monetization, you know, mi- microtransactions and in-app purchases are usually the go-to. It's like the first thing you think of. But you earlier mentioned DLCs as another monetization strategy, and I think that. I actually really like the idea of DLCs because so far I think if I were to look at you know what whichever model looked the best so far I think DLCs were pretty good I I look at you know Spider-Man um that Spider-Man game for PlayStation and Xbox and I think about games like Battlefield and the Battlefield series 
being yeah. able to push out new content is something that I think people should be willing to pay for. It's a lot of hard work, right? Yeah. As long as it adds on to the game and doesn't take away from the game story, you know, as long as studios aren't creating these games knowing that they're going to push out DLCs in mind and, you know, cutting the core game short so that they could release five more DLC episodes to follow, right? Yeah, I, I like my games to have a beginning and an end and then put out some more DLCs to further expand the story or the content or the gameplay, right? So I think, you know, from what I'm taking away from this so far out of monetization, I think for me, DLCs are the ones that I like the most. Hmm. Ray, what do you think about this? I was actually thinking about a different type of monetization as you guys were talking, and I wanted to get your opinion. So Microsoft is putting on a new console, but they've actually been doing Game Pass for a little while now. And the whole point of monetization is obviously to make more money, but ultimately all these companies want to survive. They want to keep expanding. They want to do more because as the market evolves, you have to find new ways to capture attention and, you know, grow your company, especially if you're publicly listed. Actually, this is famously the reason why, or at least partially why Hideo Kojima left Konami because Konami released, you know, some mobile games alongside with Metal Gear Solid 5. And, you know, they spent like 80 million on Metal Gear Solid 5 and made, you know, break even and a little bit more whereas they spent 1 million on a mobile game with microtransactions and it was like an exponential return but again going back to what i was really thinking about with game pass obviously the kinds of games that are on game pass are very different from you know free to play microtransaction games but ultimately those games and their publishers and developers need to survive they need to make money so now microsoft is going the Netflix route, charging a monthly fee. Who knows how that gets disseminated? But one thing that I would expect from those games that are on that pass is to not have absurd or uh, inappropriate levels of you know extra purchase content. Uh, I would expect no microtransactions, maybe DLC, but again, so I'm just thinking from the perspective, is that a better way for companies to thrive and survive? It's obviously not as good as microtransactions if you're a successful company like Genshin Impact today is, where people are dropping $2,000 um, to get Durek or whatever his name is. I don't know. Do you think Game Pass is like a good future? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So I think it ties back to this point I was making earlier how do you how do you reward a studio for having someone play their game end to end or like spend more time on their game for example um and this might be a way to do it like if if like you have a game pass where where let's say your game receives a larger cut of the revenue if players spend more time playing it it would it would be a game changer now obviously there's drawbacks for that because then you get into the whole attention economy argument like you might have games that kind of keep you addicted to your screen rather than keeping keeping you addicted to in-app purchases or to drop boxes or, st or stuff like that like they might just have an incentive to make their games addicting just for the sake of keeping you there but it's really difficult to strike this balance like i can give you some insights into like how the industry approaches these strategies especially the mobile gaming industry i think like uh, in the PC and uh, console gaming industry, it's a little more straightforward. Like most of the time you have 
the upfront cost of the game and then maybe DLCs. Some games now have loot boxes and stuff like that, which is a little more complex. In the mobile gaming industry, there's many, many, many ways of making money, right? So you can have, you can have ads, you can have microtransactions of all sorts and stuff like that. And there's a certain like shared vocabulary in the, in the data science world in, in, in game monetization, which I guess as a gamer, you, you might want to know yourself as well, to, you know, speaking to your audience. So there's a couple of things you look at, like there's a very common metric called LTV, lifetime value. So a lifetime value is that you as a gamer, if you install this game, how much money do we expect to make from you over your lifetime of playing this game? And you could set that to like a reasonable outer limit, like let's say two, three years or whatever, because maybe that's how long you expect someone to be playing that game. Then there's metrics regarding churn, for example, like churn basically means like how, how long before this player leaves your game based on a profile of a, a new player that just installed how many days or months before the median player of this profile would uninstall this game, right? Or stop playing it, become inactive. These, uh, these metrics, these KPIs kind of dictate monetization strategies, right? So like you could, you could have a situation where like, let's say you're a, you're a studio that's publishing games. Uh, let's say Justin, you know, installs one of our games from Google play and looking at your LTV for that game and your your retention rate so when when you're expected to churn we decide that you might be more likely to play one of our other games for longer and you might your ltv for that game might be higher so we'll we might like try to show you ads very aggressively to our other game so we it's called cannibalization like we try to like get you to move from from the game you're currently playing to a game where you're more likely to spend money right there's just so many like collateral effects of this kind of a model where I should say that like the people who are designing these things aren't malevolent. Like I, I don't know any, any data scientist who's sitting at home, staying up at night, thinking about how to ruin a gamer's mental health. Like nobody's doing that. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I would hope so. But, yeah. But I think what happens is like we create systems where the interests are pitted, the interests of the business are pitted against the interests of the players and something like the Game Pass uh, thing that you were just describing, I'm not familiar with it, but like this Netflix model, subscription model, might fix that to some extent. Because then like a game studio isn't, isn't trying to like define the sort of the, the core components of their game based on things like LTV and churn and all of these kind of things and retention. They might have some sense of security that as long as this player installs the game, uh, I, I get X amount of dollars. And then on top of that, like, this is where the conversation gets interesting is like, what then? Like, does a company get rewarded more if the player plays for longer? How much of that data? Now, this is also interesting. Like, how much of that data would the game studio be allowed to, uh, to track and retain about like a player's activity in game, right? Like, I'm pretty sure it's not possible for Microsoft to say you can't, you can't know how long a player has been playing your game for. Like, the game studio will find that out regardless. But the question is like, do you, do you reward the game studio for that? And if you do that, like there's clearly benefits to doing that, but what are the drawbacks? Like, can you, can you somehow prevent them from building games that are just sort of attention black holes? You know, I don't know. I'm kind of spitballing here myself, but uh, yeah, the, the problems I think start not because any one person or entity has like malicious intentions. 
just the, the way this market is set up, like everyone is trying to trying to like trying to like get what's best for them. Like gamers are trying to spend as little as money as possible. So typically, like this is why all these problems, like one of the reasons why all these problems started is like we don't want to be spending eighty bucks every time we buy a game. And on the mobile economy, like there's just so many games. Organically, if if this whole microtransaction thing didn't exist, you'd be drawn to buying the cheaper game, which is of the same quality. So the price of a game would go down, 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 and eventually the companies would say, "Okay, we need to find a more creative way to juice some money out of this player. Otherwise, we're gonna we're not gonna survive." So then the the tables turn because now players think that they're getting a game for free, but they're paying for it in in various other ways. Like over time, they're maybe paying more or Right. Uh, they're watching more ads or something. So and, yeah. Like and, just to finish yeah. my thought there I was going to say like somewhere I think we need to sit down as as a community as an industry and figure out like how do we align our interests because right now it feels a bit like publishers and game studios are pitted against players. They're both trying to get the best bang for their buck. And clearly, you know, game studios with teams of massive data scientists are going to eventually outplay outmaneuver the players in this in this tug of war. Yeah, and and I totally agree with you. Um, to your point, especially about how these people they don't have malicious intent, right? At the end of the day, they have a job. The job is to bring in revenue and bring in players. Especially for mobile games, I feel like it's really difficult to strike that balance because either you you put a game out into the app store, you charge three or five dollars for it, and that raises your barrier to entry because that probably means that less people are going to download your app, or you put out a game for free, and then you get a ton of players into it. and then you know then you start charging the microtransactions and you start to get them spending more money right where your potential for the lifetime value of a customer can increase is higher so you know when you put when you put a price on a game and you release it on the app store let's say for like 5 bucks the customer pays for that the one time and that's it you you know the customer paid five, paid 5 bucks and that's you know all you're going to get from them right and then yeah the other hand where you put that game out for free and then you attract the larger you know player base because there's a lower barrier to entry and then you start charging them the microtransactions and then they start spending more money so i think that you know there's definitely the two sides to doing things and i think there always will be it's kind of like um it's kind of like marketing i think you know people are always going to use the data to find out what appeals to their customers how they can get them spending and you know how they can bring them in so I think that you know the data will always always be there and somebody is always going to be looking at it and somebody is always going to try to be saying you know how do I take this data and increase revenue from it I think publisher developers that you know end up going through the game pass system will ultimately have lower income given and my feeling is that it's more fixed but I think with that we'll see a higher rate of quality in the games produced because they're not fixated on you know ROI returns microtransactions or just money they can just focus on the experience and the story that they want to tell or the gameplay that they want to have players experience and whatnot so that's something that gives me hope um i definitely you know when i first heard about game pass i thought it was really radical but uh you know the more and more i think about it i think it might be a saving grace it's hard to tell right before all of this stuff kind of plays out like this one more thing that we aren't talking about is the sort of 
never ending expectations that we have of these studios right um like you look at something like red dead redemption 2 right which is just a it's a marvel of a game in terms of like what they achieved like technically in terms of the beauty of the game and like the narrative was just so different from anything we have experienced the pacing and just the sheer size of the world like rockstar never lets you down when it comes to like the 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 immersiveness of an open world right yeah. but when we look at a game like that we have to realize that these are massive risks high budget projects like uh for us to expect quality standards like that we have to accept that like they're going to someone's paying for this stuff right like somehow the company it has to be viable for them to like risk like a multi, like a multi multi million dollar project like this and i think more and more we're expecting like game studios from smaller even like mobile studios and like other indie game platforms to push the limits of their technological abilities and stuff there's a price to pay for that and like us as 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 consumers have to kind of decide how do we want to pay this price right and and we can vote with our wallets we can vote by spending money on the things that we we think are ethical ways of monetizing games right and like this is why i i for example like don't mind buying a tribe or two extra on, on polytopia or like once in a while i would buy a skin on on csgo just cuz i i support the model and i think if i have the money and i support the model i want to i want to invest in it like so a really good a really good example for you would be there's a game called rimworld i don't know how many people know about this game it's this single player survival game with a very very strong focus on storytelling and narrative engineering and stuff it's a really beautiful game like every time you play it it's a completely different experience and it's cheap it's not particularly expensive it's 30 35 and the way i don't know if this game has any dlc as at all it has this community full of like free mods um but i don't think you need to buy anything else like i think yeah they do have a few expansion packs so i'm wrong about that but uh, not not necessary like there's so many so many op- open source mods that you can just play the game for free and have a great time one of the things here as a consumer when you buy a game like this you're voting for something very particular you're saying look i don't care that much about graphics and like the mecha- i don't i don't need this game to be like the most fut- futuristic game in the world like it's really simple top down two dimensional pixelated graphics it's, but what you're paying for is like a really really high quality narrative and a really really high qu- quality like very well developed world with immersion and everything so you as a gamer are kind of voting there you're saying that look i don't mind you know you're giving us a game at like a mid range price it stands in stark contrast with something like red dead redemption 2 where red dead redemption 2 when you buy a game like rdr 2 uh you're basically saying hey i'm i'm willing to spend my money on experiences that are just mind blowing technical feats right these are like the frontier of technology like the artifact of our generation when it comes to like video games right so you're saying this is what i want like when you spend your money on that you're saying this is what i'm encouraging in the industry rimworld is this game where quality of the graphics are are very very low like they're not low in a bad way but they're very simple they're very easy to make they're not anything like technologically impressive but the games like narrative uh, storytelling engines and like the richness and how immersive the content of the game really is 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 mind blowing and when you spend your money on on a game like that you're pushing at least you're helping devs who are trying to create this new or sort of like competing genre of games which need not be at the forefront of of technical uh and 
audio visual experiences but they can still be amazing and the reason i bring up rimworld uh, is there's a lot of games like this there's a lot of games. there's a studio called don't not entertainment i think or don't not studios that made the life is strange series again beautiful narrative experience right the indie game small small budget game when you buy games like this what you're doing is you're ensuring that you you're sort of reassuring these devs that like hey technical brilliance is not the only thing we care about we care about we care about content we care about these other things the gaming experience itself is really important to us and just by by voting with your dollar on things like this you can you can change the course of the future of the gaming industry right and same thing goes for mobile games as well like do you want to be buying games where there's addictive microtransactions or do you want to be buying games where you have like a upfront one time cost or perhaps a game with tons of dlcs but a very small free to play like basic game like it's up to you right like i'm not saying one is better than the other but these are good things to think about like as a consumer in the gaming industry it's good to be conscientious about like what you spend your money on because you you you're voting on the future of our industry by doing that absolutely man and and my my final point on that basically is just that gamers are hard to please but to your point previously about building trust and a relationship with your community i think it goes a long way for um a studio or a developer to have that relationship with their audience because it goes a long way in having them support you when it comes to whether or not they want to spend the extra dollar right and i think it's always great to support studios that are innovating too yeah one thing that i wanted to talk about a little bit is i guess a lot of people who play games somewhat casually don't know this game devs don't make a lot of money and when i say this i'm talking about employees at massive game corporations but also indie studios where like people have just started their own studios i know a lot of indie game devs like at unity like a lot of the employees at unity have their own game studios or at least they're building games on the side it's not like what you'd expect i guess a lot of people see this as like you know greedy capitalists trying to take all your money there is a bit of that like especially on the triple a level but like as individual game devs it's it's a real struggle like it's a real struggle and uh, when you're looking at indie games like try to temper your expectations according to like what's possible as well right like there are people who spend their whole life uh, living on essentially like the bare minimum just to be able to give you some amazing experience like stardew valley is a really good example of this where like it's one guy who spent like 6 or 7 years building this wonderful world yeah. like this farming simulator right and like i feel that yeah he got a lot of recognition and respect for it because his game made it but there's a lot of game devs like that who are who are like uh working tirelessly to give you these amazing indie experiences and sometimes they don't make it and like it's it's sad because like they don't receive the validation and and here's the thing you got to understand like if someone knows how to code they could be doing literally anything else and making more money than game dev like they could just switch over to building websites or like building data pipelines or like whatever ml algorithms whatever they can do right like any of these things would pay way better than making games but they chose out of passion and in a sense out of love for the community to spend their time living on like subsistence money to build an experience for you guys and and perhaps they didn't make it perhaps their their idea wasn't the best or for whatever reason they didn't make it but we as as gamers have to show some support for these guys like if if you see a kickstarter you like man go spend your money if you have money if you see a patreon for a gamer that like that you want to support go support them because it's by doing these things you're you're able to counterbalance the really large gaming corporations which 
which really compete for your attention and your dollars through loot boxes and microtransactions and all of this kind of stuff like you can just you can change the way the industry looks just by being a little more conscientious as a spender like give these indie games a shot right like don't just go for like the top shelf game every time like if you have 80 bucks to spend yeah it's sometimes good to go and buy the next call of duty but you might want to think about buying three indie shooters rather than one big triple a shooter right uh, and it really makes a huge difference to how the industry looks like what your steam page will look like what what steam will look like in future like a lot of it as a consumer it's in your hands you know to make sure there's a balance in in our industry well would yeah. you say more often than not that these same people that you're talking about are the highly skilled people oh yeah like the ones who are who are basically broke and living off of uh, cup noodles for for your yeah yeah like it is what it is like some of them are highly skilled and some of them are not but in in, in See okay I'm going to tell you this as an engineer I can uh, I can guarantee that like if someone has the self confidence to make uh, an entire video game on their own or with a very tiny team and they can actually pull that pull that off they're good they're good at what they do if they got greenlit on steam it means they're very good at their craft so they could be doing something else that pays them better they could go and take a job with a triple a studio or they could go into like some other kind of programming where it's not as 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 valuable or uh, in terms of like their it's not as fulfilling but they'll make more money right so in a sense i i feel personally responsible for supporting these indie studios whenever i can right and this is not just me i think kickstarter has become a very successful model for funding games which is really cool right like one of the big questions when we're talking about monetization uh, monetization we're talking about like how does a game make revenue once it's launched but there's also a question of how do you have enough funds to support the development of the game for the first few years right for big triple a studios this is not usually a problem but for indie games this is a huge problem this is the main problem right they have to bootstrap they have to find some way to stay alive and uh, this is where like crowdfunding i think is 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 the future is the way to go but yeah to reiterate to your point some of these guys are absolute prodigies at what they do yeah a really good example of that would be the last game company not the last game company uh that game company who made journey and previously flower uh they actually ran out of money 5 months before they uh launched the game yeah so the team literally worked for free damn for 5 whole months on the game and you better believe 12 hours a day 16 hours a day oh yeah um just to get it right because like you alluded to it was a passion project they believed in it and it was something that they had to put out. And it wasn't that they thought or knew that it was going to make millions of dollars. They just knew that in their bones that they had to do it. Yeah. No, I have a lot of respect for indie game devs, man. I look at them and I say that like I I sometimes feel that I wish I had the balls because I I I feel like I could do it <laughs> if I if I really put my head down. I know enough about programming and I used to build games on Flash when I was a kid. I feel like if I just spent a year or two learning it I probably do it but I just don't have the balls. I don't have the balls to say that like I'm going to give up my my cushy job uh and you know all the all the very marketable skills I know in the in the world of data and ML and just build something that maybe people will play and maybe I'll get shit on, right? Maybe I'll get shit. and this is something that happens all the time like indie gamers get shit on, right? Yeah. So it takes a lot of guts and I think as a gaming as a gamer and like uh, as a member of this community it's like up to us to make sure that like these people still have the guts to keep making games i read somewhere like very recently that 
in the last nine or ten years, it's become like significantly less profitable to make an indie game. Like on on average, indie games are making less money, even though there's more indie games and more money in the ecosystem. The market's super saturated. Yeah. And what happens as a result of that is the AAA start getting more and more of the market share, and AAA's by nature don't take risks. So if you look at something like uh, I don't want to name a company actually, but any of these big franchise games. what happens is the first game is amazing they take all these ri- uh, risks by by version like by uh, like game number 2 or 3 the original creators have cashed out like the company went public they sold their shares they're, they're gone or they're working on something else um, and all the executives the bureaucrats take over the decision making right the investors kind of uh, use these guys as proxies to make decisions and games become extremely risk averse and you'll see this over and over and over again in franchises where the first few games in a franchise are are just mind blowing they're weird they're crazy but over time like every game just feels like the same recycled shit again and again and again yeah and the reason this is happening is because if a company knows for sure that it can make uh, x million amount of dollars in revenue from the game they would rather do that than take a 20% chance that they'd make A hundred times that money, or twenty times that money, or whatever, because that risk for them is not required. It's not worth it, and uh, like the the cost is too great. Like the overhead of building such a game is too high. So, like as the market gets more saturated towards like massive AAA games and these huge studios, we're going to see more and more recycled, boring garbage content come out, and innovation will die. uh so this is where like we need to make sure that it's profitable to make an indie game we need to make sure that like the indie gaming community gets the respect it deserves and like if possible uh your your funding you know like as a crowd funder or whatever right and in some regards i think that it's also a fairly good time for indie games in terms of the scene because you know there are a lot of indie games right now that are getting a lot of attention you know going back to games like among us um i'm not sure if you've heard about phasmophobia but i mean these are two games that essentially broke records over the past month um in terms of active concurrent players on steam i think they made it to like the top 3 or 4 play um top 3 or 4 in terms of you know millions of players that are actively playing the game so i mean you have these indie games that are breaking records um in terms of player count i think that a lot of people are starting to explore indie games especially because they're also being picked up by a lot of streamers so to your point i mean it's a struggle um i think that the indie game scene is becoming more prominent at the same time where a lot of people are picking up these games as well um i think it's again going back to how do these indie games monetize and how can they make a living from the games that they're making and how can they you know be incentivized to keep innovating where triple a titles cannot anymore right yeah yeah and this, it's a conversation about like there's two things to talk about one is yeah how do we make sure that like there's clearly like indie games are doing really well some of them but yep. the average indie game doesn't make as much money as uh, it used to 10 years ago from what i read earlier maybe right. wrong but i'm pretty sure it's true my gut tells me it's true um there's a the, the underlying problem here is that it's become riskier and riskier to build a game but at the same time easier and easier like game engines now are a walk in the park like you can learn them in a month you know but yeah. um yeah so like there's a like I feel like as a gamer I I feel somewhat responsible to make make sure that like it's we we kind of make it profitable and at least like provide support uh, even psychologically to indie game studios um because just because among us is doing is killing it right now 
there's a lot of really really good games that can't make any money because they they don't have the resources and the bandwidth to monetize in the same way yeah um and the other conversation around monetization i think is interesting and honestly i wish i had answers for you but i don't uh it's really hard to define the ethical boundaries which we're willing to accept like what model are we willing to accept uh as as a society what's better for us as what's a healthier relationship between studios and and uh, gamers like it's it's all like yeah we will shit on ea once in a while and and rightfully so i would say but like <laughs> it doesn't solve the problem that we don't have very good alternative answers right like these games are really expensive to make how do we make sure that they get made on a regular basis without us getting addicted to them without us without our children getting addicted to spending money without uh, really understanding the consequence of that yeah very difficult questions indeed i don't i don't really have answers that is the question for the day and uh, i think one that we won't necessarily be able to answer here and now but i mean i i think that wraps up our episode for today and uh, i mean we talked a lot about you know monetization so i think that was the main topic for today but you know we sincerely appreciate your time and input yeah, thank you for having me this was amazing i i just enjoyed it to be honest i've this never done this here. before hopefully we'll keep in touch justin it was really nice meeting you as well and really Absolutely. Good to see you as always yeah and one thing we like to do at the end of these episodes is just suggest a game old or new doesn't matter that you think people should check out so what would that be for you pratik yeah so look i've already spoken at length about polytopia so i won't uh, say that again but <laughs> I, i i i i i talked briefly about this game called rimworld so Here's the thing about Rimworld that that was really unbelievable to me. Like I, uh, when I was in university, I used to try to do this thing called uh, narrative engineering. So I used to try to build these like stories on Flash with like interactive experiences. And I was like, man, I just don't quite. I don't have my finger on what I'm looking to do here. And then I played Rimworld, and I was like, this is amazing. This is this is exactly what I wanted. Like in Rimworld, with these really simple low poly graphics, the, the, it has the storyteller engine that just throws random events into your into your story. Like you're a bunch of colonists, and you have to survive in this like sort of hostile land. And the AI storyteller will will keep you engaged. Random things are going to happen. There's various different storytellers as well. Um, and the really weird and beautiful thing about this game is that every time you play it, it's a completely different story. And every single time you feel attached to your colonists, you'll feel you'll feel like these are real people with real things happening to them and it's immersive in a very organic way it's not scripted but it feels like it's just as good as a scripted game if not better and for me that was amazing it's available on steam it's a really cheap game too i don't remember exactly how much it costs but it's not like a it's like i think 40 bucks or lower even goes on discount once in a while and it can run on pretty much any machine so like pretty broad audience there awesome. so yeah check it out it's called rimworld there you go rimworld um ray what about you I'm kind of debating between two different games, so I'll just go for both. One's a AAA-ish uh, called Shadow of the Colossus. Um, the reason why I'm suggesting this game is particularly for the folks who engage in, you know, microtransaction-heavy games or mobile games. I want you guys to pick up this game and get lost in it. This game, it's about 15 to 20 hours long, but there's little to no dialogue or any, like, a uh, clear story that's going on you pretty much have to like like the gameplay sort of tells the story itself but you pretty much piece it together in your head and the reason why i'm suggesting this is because i want people to experience again what it's like to get lost in another world and focus on a specific objective and 
even if you guys have played the game, you'll know what I'm talking about when I say you don't have to worry about, you know, weapons or upgrading or anything like that. You just have the same crap throughout the entire game and it evolves in other ways. Uh, the other game that I like to recommend is Papers, Please. So that's an indie-ish game. It's cheap too. It's a very, very simple game, but very quickly it escalates. It becomes more complex. And before you know it, you get emotionally invested in the people and the story. And yeah. Uh, I love Papers, Please. That's my second one. Videos of it. Super cool game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Super simple, but like, it's amazing. Um, the game that I would like to recommend just to spite Ray is a game called Spec Ops The Line because I know he hates this game. But oh, <laughs> this game to me was fantastic when it came to the narrative it told. Now, the gameplay was fairly lackluster, at, but at, at its core, it was pretty much a third-person military shooter. But man, I can't spoil the story, but it's one of those things that just makes you think even after you're done the game and makes you question, you know, in terms of war, who are the bad guys, who are the good guys? I personally love a game where you can finish playing it and then you go to a forum to search it up and then you look up at all the theories that people are coming up with. This is one of those games. So for me, it would be Spec Ops The Line. All right. I think that's pretty much it. Thank you, Pratik, again. And thank you to all our listeners. We will catch you guys on the next episode. See you later. See you guys later. Ciao.